It is always a great privilege to be able to come before you and open up the infallible record and immerse you in its great truths. And we come back again to the topic that we began last week, a one that one that has received a, a great deal of, of interest from our listeners in other parts of the world, and certainly a very important message for our day given the deceptions that we constantly experience in our culture. And so this morning we move to part two of the topic contrasting true versus false shepherds. And we find ourselves again in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 23, in verses 1 through 12. This is an examination of Jesus' last public sermon on earth. And it's interesting that he chose as his topic a scathing denunciation of false shepherds, including a fascinating description of their character and their conduct, much of which is elaborated upon in other parts of the New Testament. And he also contrasts this with a picture of true shepherds. Now, some might say, well, Pastor, this is a bit irrelevant because, frankly, I think I'm very discerning. Well, be careful, my friend. We are told in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. May I remind you that Satan is absolutely ingenious. He is cunning, requiring us, therefore, to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against his schemes, according to Ephesians 6. Jesus has warned in Matthew chapter 7 that we should beware of the false prophets. The idea of take them very seriously, be on guard, look out for them. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 2, too, that false teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies into the church, into the body of Christ. And therefore, we are reminded in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the primary way that we see Satan devouring people is through false doctrine and false teachers that preach false doctrine. Jude even mentions in verse 2, that they creep into the church unnoticed. They are, he says in verse 12, hidden reefs, even as they fellowship amongst the body of Christ. So it is a constant need that we all have to be discerning of false teaching, of false prophets, of false doctrine. And it is certainly a constant source of grief on my part as a pastor, when I look around and I see the systematic devastation of so many people because of the deception of various types of false teaching, and certainly I have a divine mandate to warn you and to instruct you, and so that is indeed what I will do. We should all approach this issue with utmost care. I mentioned to you last week, and I think it bears repeating, that we need to see this the same way we would on all points bulletin when the police would say there is a sexual predator or a rapist or a murderer in your community. We need to understand that the foe that we are dealing with, with false teachers, my friends, is a far more formidable, far more cunning, far more deceptive and destructive foe than any murderer in our midst because these people and what they teach are able to deceive people into the very pit of an eternal hell. So it's a very, very important topic. And again, it is so important that Jesus went to great lengths to describe what I would say are five very obvious characteristics of false religious leaders here in the text that we have before us. 
And again, may I remind you that these characteristics that Jesus gave were not ones that would require a great deal of theological acumen to be able to pick up on the subtle nuances of some of the false teaching, even though that would be important. But these characteristics are ones that even the most theological or theologically illiterate person, an undiscerning person, should be able to spot. We learned last week that in verse 2, the Lord tells us that they are basically ones who are self-appointed. They're not appointed by God. And certainly the scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves, Jesus says, in the seat of Moses in a position of authority. God had not called them. God had not commissioned them. God had not gifted them. So the first thing we have to be aware of with false teachers is realizing that they are typically self-appointed, self-styled teachers. They have not been appointed by God. They, not, they have not been affirmed by godly men that understand the orthodox doctrines of the word of God. Secondly, we learn that they are hypocrites who do not practice what they preach. We see that in verse 3. The Pharisees were big on revealing divine truth, and at times they even taught the right things, but they were unable to live consistently with those truths because they had not been transformed themselves. So false teachers will not have the Holy Spirit living within them that gives them the ability to somehow restrain the flesh. Only a person who has been born again can, as Paul said in Romans 7:22, joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Thirdly, we learned that they lack genuine compassion. They will typically be overbearing legalists. They will tie up, verse 4, heavy loads, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And indeed, the Jews were notorious for having to endure countless man-made rules that they could not keep. And they were saddled with loads like, like a poor donkey saddled with a load he could not carry. And they were deceived into thinking that their good had to outweigh their bad. And so they were constantly walking around depressed and frustrated. But rather than their leaders showing them compassion and helping them understand the grace of God, which they did not understand themselves, they would berate the people for their lack of spirituality. And so typically false teachers will be overbearing, abusive legalists, the very opposite of the gentle savior of the good shepherd that would give himself for his sheep. But there are two other characteristics that we see here in this text before us. The fourth of the five that I would bring out. And that fourth characteristic would be that false teachers are desperate to be noticed. Notice verse five. Jesus says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Now, the Pharisees were notorious for their ostentatious garb. All of their little little hats and robes and and uh, the phylacteries that I'll go into more in a moment, the long tassels that they would have on their garments. And of course, this was merely a pretense of spirituality without the reality of spirituality. As I would say, it was all sizzle and no steak. And this will always be the mark of a false religion. You'll see all of these external symbols of religiosity, scepters and collars and hats and robes and typically gaudy jewelry, uh, the, the, the large crosses and so on and so forth. By the way, Jesus never wore any of that, nor did the apostles wear any of that. I thought it would be rather humorous to someday come in here dressed up like the Pope to see what your reaction would be. But I'm afraid it would be too distracting from our worship. But you get the point. You see, the motivation of a false teacher is to be noticed, to be noticed by men. They are making, as Paul said in Galatians 6, 12, a good showing in the flesh. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that in the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive. And later on, 
he says that they will hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then we're told to avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, Jesus gives some examples here of how the Pharisees did exactly this, examples that everybody could see. And again, remember now, Jesus is in the temple court. He has successfully repudiated all of their accusations and he has exposed their hypocrisy. He has answered all of their questions. They have now been silenced. And now the multitudes are standing around and indeed the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of pouting over in the corner, but they would have still been there with their phylacteries upon their heads and upon their wrists. And so it must have been a rather humiliating situation for them. And Jesus talks about how that they would do things to get noticed by men. And he says, first of all, that they will broaden their phylacteries. A phylactery, by the way, is a transliteration of the Greek word phylacteria, and it, it, it means a, a protection or a safeguard. Sometimes it was called a tephilin, which would be a term that was derived from the Hebrew word that is translated frontals. And they would wear this on, on the front of their head. And they would also wore, wear one on their left arm, the left arm, because it was closest to the heart. By the way, there's no record of their use until around 400 B.C. during the intertestamental period. But what had happened is the Jews took literally four commands that were found in the Pentateuch in four separate texts that his law was to be on their hands and on their foreheads to remind them of his holy standard. Now, they should have interpreted this figuratively or shall we say symbolically, because God's point was not that you're to wear this stuff, but rather that my law should govern all that you think and all that you do. That was his point. Let me describe the phylactery to you a little bit. It was a little box made out of a, a ceremonially clean animal. It had been dyed black. It was stitched together with 12 hand stone hand sewn stitches, one stitch representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the phylactery that was worn on the head consisted of four little compartments. And each compartment contained one of the four texts out of the Pentateuch on a little tiny piece of parchment. And the phylactery that was worn on the left wrist contained one piece of parchment that had all four of the texts written upon them. And they also, by the way, had some of the letters on uh, of uh, of the Hebrew word Shaddai, which is translated God Almighty. They had some of those letters on the external part of the phylactery worn on the head. And then the band that was tied around the head and around the um, um, the wrist had to be tied in such a way as to basically depict a couple of other letters of the Hebrew language so that, again, all of this would somehow say Shaddai, referring to God Almighty. But sadly, the term itself later became a synonym for a magical amulet or a charm even in the pagan cultures, and many of the Jews gradually adapted the same thinking. They would wear these things to ward off evil spirits. But now most Jewish men, um, even today, but certainly in Jesus' day, would only wear the phylacteries when they would go to pray. And when you were 13 years old, a young boy at his bar mitzvah would receive his first uh, phylacteries and they would be worn during a time of morning prayer. But the Pharisees of Jesus' day wore them all the time. And it therefore became a symbol of pride, of spiritual superiority. Well, not only that, in order to really get noticed, what they would do is broaden them. They would make them bigger to symbolize their advanced status of superiority. And again, I wonder what those Pharisees were 
thinking and feeling as they stood there in front of the multitude and the multitudes would probably glance over at them and look at them. Well, they not only did that, but Jesus said that they would lengthen their tassels. By the way, Jesus, we don't believe, wore a phylactery ever, but he did wear tassels. Remember the, the woman with the hemorrhage of blood? She touched those tassels. We read about that in Matthew 9:20, And that originated out of Numbers 15, beginning in verse 38, where the Lord commanded Moses to tell his covenant people to make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. And here's why. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Now, today you can see remnants of the ancient tassel. As you look at the Orthodox Jewish men today, they will have tassels on their prayer shawls. But the sad reality is that in Jesus' day, not only would they broaden their phylacteries, but they would lengthen the tassels. You know, if you're really spiritual, you've got to have really long tassels so that everybody could notice you. And how sad. What God intended to draw people to himself became a pretentious means of drawing attention to themselves. Just the opposite. And certainly it is indicative of false shepherds, even to this day, to concoct every imaginable means to get people to notice them. Because they thrive on attention. Because they are filled with pride. Now remember, in verse 4, we read that they would burden the people down with heavy loads. And again, they would have all of these religious works and all of these rituals and traditions. A lot of legalistic nonsense that the people had to, had to do. And of course, they were always frustrated because it was impossible to keep all of these silly laws. So they were always feeling guilty. And then the Pharisees and the scribes would berate them because they weren't godly enough. And yet in verse five, he says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Now, here's the point. And here's what we need to translate into our day. False shepherds, counterfeit pastors, however you want to put it, will inevitably be overbearing, controlling type of people that will concoct a variety of rules and regulations. They will become very legalistic. And of course, they will proudly obey those rules. At least they'll try to get you to think they are. And they will berate you if you don't. And like the Pharisees, they will typically amass an immense following of very frustrated, abused, guilt-ridden people. While they themselves will strut around like proud peacocks showing off the plumage of their religious superiority, desperate to be noticed by men. And certainly they're easily spotted even to this day. Many times we will see it in religious clothing or paraphernalia. And I don't even need to go into examples. You, you know, whenever you look at someone and you can tell they are dressed or they're doing certain things that scream, look at me, see how spiritual I am. You know, there is a wolf and you need to run from that person. Well. As we look at the list that Jesus has given us, we see that not only they were self-appointed hypocrites, lacking true compassion for those whom they claim to shepherd, desperate to be noticed. But fifthly, they were what I would call egomaniacs. Notice verses six and seven. Jesus said, and they loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, rabbi. You see, the place of honor at a banquet, for example, would be at the head table, the place where you could be noticed the most. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be the center of attention. And again, you will see this to this day with false shepherds. They love to run wherever the spotlight is. They're always running to get under it to be able to say, here I am. They also wanted the chief seats in the synagogues. By the way, the synagogues would have a raised platform such as is this. 
And we do this not to in any way elevate me, but to elevate the word and so that you can see. But they would have much the same type of thing. But what would happen is the the rabbis would come in with all of their garb and their large phylacteries and all of their tassels. And they would read the scripture and they would give homilies and they would kind of do a little stage show for all of the people. And that's what Jesus is exposing here. They loved to be on stage. And frankly, false shepherds are, for the most part, glorified actors. They thrive on the spotlight. And you won't see them serving the Lord in obscurity. They can't stand that. They've got to have a stage. They have to have applause. In fact, if you've been around these type of people, and I've been around them a great deal, you'll find that the most dangerous place on earth is between them and a television camera. You know, this is common. I've seen this a lot in the Christian music industry, having been in that realm for many years, and certainly with other well-known kind of Christian celebrities, televangelists, and so on. They will have their publicists. They will have all of their posters They will always be on tour. They love to have their name on the marquee of the big churches, never the little churches. And frankly, when you're around them, you will experience this feeling that somehow they perceive themselves to be the center of gravity. And everyone has to kind of orbit around them, all of their entourage, quick to grab this and give them this. Oh, can I get you some water? Oh, here, let me carry those back. Oh, here, I'll get that door. That's the way you see them. Can you imagine Jesus being that way? They will typically dominate conversations. They're kind of the large and in charge type of people. The term prima donna comes to mind. They will typically be very temperamental and explode in anger very quickly if they are in any way inconvenienced or if they're criticized. I have found that they have enormous fees I know some of the booking agents, you call the booking agents, you pick out some of them that you think might be of this ilk and you find out what it would cost to get them to come and speak. And it would be tens of thousands of dollars. And of course, that eliminates any of the small churches. Of course, they have to have limousines and I've been around it. They have to have the best hotels. We've talked to a few. There were some that I was surprised were even this way, some that were invited Uh, to come to this area, and they were quick to give people a list of the only type of hotels they would stay in. They would have their people look ahead of time and say, we'll stay in these three hotels, but no others. And also, many times they will give you, and I've seen this before, a list of restaurants that they will eat at. And these are the only ones. And they will be the most expensive restaurants in town. They will give you a list of what they want in their dressing rooms before services or before concerts. They typically have to have fruit baskets and all kinds of a variety of different drinks and foods and so on. It's ridiculous. Well, why? why? Well, because they're egomaniacs. They're not serving the Lord. They're serving themselves. Jesus added that they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. This, by the way, was a title that had the connotation of of the most knowledgeable one, all most knowledgeable one. We are so glad to have you here today. It also had the idea of of the of the supreme one or your excellency. It's that type of thing. I cringe when I hear people on the news talk about his excellency, the pope. Or you have people who demand, for example, to be called doctor. Or demand to be called reverend. I hear the term like the reverend Jesse Jackson and so on. They love these respectful greetings. And certainly Jesus knew the Pharisees were of this ilk. They were in love with themselves. And I'm sure most of the multitude recognized that as well. One source that I read said, and I quote, one rabbi 
of that day insisted that he be buried in white garments when he died because he wanted the world to know how worthy he was to appear before the presence of God. That's scary, isn't it? But I tell you, you get around people who are false teachers, false shepherds, and they are absolutely in love with themselves and they will be quick to tell you that and give you reasons why. Verse eight, Jesus said, but do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. In other words, he's saying, don't ever demand some pompous title to elevate yourself. He's saying, I am the only source of truth. All of the rest are merely my spokesman. And as my spokesman, they are never to promote themselves. As a pastor, I'm never to demand some special title or some special status. That's why he says that you're all brothers. In other words, all of us who are genuinely born again, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, myself included. You know, even as a pastor, my, my calling and my gifts and, and my responsibilities may be different. I have a stricter judgment. Uh, I will have to give an account on, on how I shepherd you, but I'm nothing special. I'm just like you. You all have your gifts, your talents. Your responsibilities. In verse nine, he says, and do not call anyone on earth your father. This is the idea of being a spiritual father, not an earthly biological father. He says, for one is your father. He is he who is in heaven. And again, I cringe whenever I hear someone of the Roman Catholic system address one of their priests with the title Holy Father. This verse always comes to my mind. Or abbot or pope, which are derivatives of the same concept. And Jesus clearly prohibits such blasphemy. And in verse 10, he says, and do not be called leaders for one is your leader. That is Christ. And leader here is just a general reference to any any formal title that is used to exalt someone over someone else in some spiritual sense. Instead, he says in verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. You want to be great? Don't look for and demand for some title, for some special place of privilege. Serve people, even in obscurity. And whoever exalts himself, he goes on to say, shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Beloved, this is the very opposite of the egomaniac. You see, there is absolutely no place in the body of Christ for self-exaltation, for self-aggrandizement. There's no place for that. And whenever you see it, Know that somewhere there is a false shepherd, a false leader lurking around in the shadows. Jesus was the supreme example of the one who humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And it was because of his humility that Philippians 2 tells us, for this reason, God highly exalted him. For what reason? Because of his humility. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the, on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, think of this. Jesus humbly did the will of his Father. And because of that, Jesus highly exalted him. He did not come to exalt himself. And as we read Scripture, we see that that the father exalted Christ first in the resurrection when he raised him from the dead. Secondly, he, he exalted him when he ascended to his father in the cloud of glory in the ascension. And thirdly, we see that the father gave him authority over all of heaven and over all that's in the earth. This was his great coronation. We read about, for example, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.22 that Jesus ascended and he's now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. And he was even exalted by the Father in his ordination when Jesus was made to be our faithful high priest. And now he continually intercedes on our behalf. And then he was given the name which is above every name. The supreme name, Lord, the one who is unrivaled in glory, unrivaled in honor, the absolute monarch over all things. And it's fascinating, isn't it? In Philippians 2, we read that as a result of this, 
Every knee will bow. Every knee. Those, he says, that are in heaven, which would be the redeemed and the holy angels. He says also, and on earth, those would be both the redeemed as well as the unredeemed that are still alive during the millennial reign when Jesus Christ will be revealed as the judge of the universe at that time of the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And he even says those under the earth. And that would, of course, refer to the demonic horde that are incarcerated currently in the pit, not to mention the unsaved dead that are awaiting their eternal punishment. And what will the universal reaction be of all of these? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, for the redeemed, this will be a wonderful time of praise. It will be a time where we will have an overflowing of our heart. It will be an irresistible doxology that flows from our hearts. It's easy for us to confess Jesus is Lord. But it's, isn't it interesting that even the unredeemed will be forced to declare that which they will despise for eternity, that Jesus is Lord. And I think about this. All of the false teachers someday are going to confess Jesus is Lord. They had a chance on earth, but they refused to do that. All of the Buddhist monks, all of the Muslim clerics, Osama bin Laden will someday confess. All of the God-hating rulers of the ages. I think of our day, all of the politicians that make a mockery of God and his word. The ACLU. All of the liberal media, the liberal theologians, the Hollywood moguls and all of the actors, all of the arrogant rap and hip hop and rock and country music singers. Beloved, they're all going to bow. All the Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the deity of Christ and the Mormons who deny the same. But the point of all of this is that because of Christ's humility, he was exalted. But this will never be the heart of a false shepherd. Now, to make this practically relevant in our modern culture, I want to suggest three of the most common methods that I notice false shepherds use today to attract and control the masses along with some examples of their desperation to be noticed. So let me give you three common methods. And here I'm going to expand beyond the basic categories of what the Lord has given us here in Matthew 23 and look at some other texts. First of all, what you will find with false shepherds is they will distort the truth. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28 and following, Paul warns that we are to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. In other words, from within the body of Christ, or they would ostensibly be a, a part of that body. They would claim that they would be born again, but they would not be. And he says, and from among your own selves, men will arise. And here's what they're going to do. Speaking perverse things. There's the idea of distorting the truth. Why? To draw away the disciples after them, not after God. They're going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Now, there's many examples of this, and I'm going to touch upon a few that seem to dominate our current religious landscape. Perhaps one of the most clever distortions of truth that I have ever experienced as I have studied it, one of the most sophisticated counterfeits that I have ever seen is Rick Warren's purpose-driven life and purpose-driven church. Now, having sold some 26 million copies, books that are filled with errant theology, misinterpretations, misrepresentations of Scripture, I won't get off on all of that. I've talked about it much before, but may I remind you that in these books, you find that the offense of the cross has been removed and that wide 
a wide gate gospel paradigm that utterly eviscerates the essential truths of the gospel. Then make successful living the sole reason why Jesus suffered and died at Calvary. Staggering distortions of truth, and certainly it plays very well. And in this movement, I've read that they have now, with this paradigm, this system, trained over 400,000 pastors all over the world, and it's growing. By the way, it's just the opposite of the way Jesus worked. Remember that Jesus' principle for ministry was concentration equals multiplication. You go deep with a few, and he did that with 12, primarily three. You go deep with a few. And then the multiplication will occur over time rather than going wide and shallow with thousands. It's interesting now that the purpose driven movement has targeted Rwanda to be the first purpose driven nation. And what's really frightening to me is Rick Warren's plan for global peace. And it's receiving an amazing reception in Christianity today in October 2005. He's quoted to have said personal computers have brand names, but inside every PC is an Intel chip and an operating system. Windows Warren goes on to say the purpose driven paradigm is the Intel chip for the 21st century church and the Windows system of the 21st century church. That's scary. In another press release that I read, it says, and I quote, Rick Warren's global peace plan is targeting the continent of Africa. He believes the world is on the brink of a great spiritual awakening and that every religion can be used to bring this new reformation into place. He, he calls it the new reformation in May at the Pew and Religion Forum. Rick Warren stated, quote, who's the man of peace in any village or it might be a woman of peace who has the most respect. They're open and they're influential. They don't have to be a Christian. In fact, they could be a Muslim, but they're open and they're influential. And you work with them to attack the five giants. And that's going to bring the second reformation. In an article on pastors dot com. He speaks more about this second reformation and how it's going to unify the church. And he tells a group of people that uh, he wants Christians to mobilize to confront the five global giants of spiritual emptiness, egocentric leadership, poverty, disease and lack of education. And because of this, this is going to now spark a second reformation. Here's what he says, and I quote, the first reformation was about belief. This one's going to be about behavior. The first one was about creeds. This one's going to be about our deeds. The first one divided the church. This time it will unify the church. Folks, I have to stop for a moment because this just sickens me. This absolutely sickens me. The first one divided the church. You mean to tell me that the Roman Catholic Church was the church? You see, this is a gross misrepresentation of the Reformation. The first Reformation was about truth versus deception, not about belief versus behavior or creeds versus deeds. And as I read the purpose driven life, obviously. This dear man doesn't. Either, either he doesn't understand the truth or he has no regard for it. But either way, such arrogant and ignorant statements betray a tragic disregard for the millions who died for the only truth that will save. Well, there are grave distortions of truth everywhere you turn these days, and it will always be the mark of a false shepherd. Let me give you some others that dominate the religious landscape. We see it so much in this word faith movement I've talked about before. Let me give you some examples from Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, notorious for twisting scripture. In Gloria Copeland's book, God's Will is Prosperity, she argues that Jesus promises, quote, a hundredfold return on everything we give. 
And she cites Mark 1030 as the proof text for that. And that's where Jesus said he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. And of course, she takes that out of context, as I'll point out in a moment. Here's what she says to people, quote, in this book, give ten dollars and receive a thousand dollars. Give a thousand dollars and receive a hundred thousand. I know that you can multiply, but I want you to see in black and white how tremendous the hundredfold return is. She goes on to say, give one house and receive 100 houses or one house worth 100 times as much. Give one airplane and receive an hundred times the value of the airplane. Give one car and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 1030 is a very good deal. Now, of course, the money that you give goes to their ministry. Well, unfortunately, her interpretation is utterly ludicrous. Mark 10, if you look at the context of that passage, you'll see that Jesus is exposing the deceitfulness of riches. And he uses as his example the rich young ruler who loved material things more than God. Isn't it amazing how things can get distorted? In fact, the multiplication principle in Mark 1030 is figurative language. It's not to be taken literally. And what Jesus is promising is a multiplication of spiritual blessing based upon what we have given up to follow Christ. It has nothing to do with an investment strategy. And yet hundreds of thousands of people are enslaved with false teaching that distorts the truth. She conveniently neglects verse 25 of Mark 10, where we read, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And she also fails to note the rest of what Jesus said in verse 30, that we will also receive not only the blessings, spiritual blessings, but we will receive them along with persecutions. Because suffering will always accompany spiritual blessing in this life. Another word for faith teacher, to give you an example, is John Abanzini. He uses the same tactics. He twists, for example, Second Chronicles 20, verse 20 in the King James Version. It says, believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And he uses that to argue, quote, if you don't trust God's prophets, you will not prosper, end quote. Now, of course, he's the prophet. All right. And the problem is that particular passage is promising military success for the nation of Israel as they are being confronted by the Moabites and the Ammonites. It has nothing whatsoever to do with financial prosperity. But he will use this text to manipulate and coerce his followers into doing whatever he says, including. Here's what he says, giving their man of God a copy of their complete financial statement. And of course, he's the man of God. And you say, well, how would he support that biblically, that we're to give our pastors our, com our complete financial statement? Well, he uses the account of the widow's oil in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, 4, 1 through 7. Now, here's his distortion. Here's what he says, quote, when the widow went to Elisha for help with her backbreaking debt, the first thing the prophet asked for was a financial statement. He asked, what do you have in your house? You see, that's supposed to be the financial statement. And he goes on to say, thank God this widow was able to trust her man of God. And he goes on to say her relationship of trust with him set her free from debt as well as funded her retirement. Folks, it's amazing. What a deception. Show me your financial statement. And of course, the idea is, and then I'll tell you how much you need to give my ministry. By the way, the Mormons do require that. Now, what's sad is when you try to warn people. Who are being duped, they often get mad because they will say, well, now, wait a minute. He supports everything from the word of God. No, he doesn't. No, they don't. They distort the truth. But secondly, what we see is they will claim special revelation. And here I would point out Jude's blistering denunciation of false teachers in Jude 8. He said, yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. Dreamer is a word that means um, one who is deluded by an overactive imagination, or it can also mean uh, a supernatural vision. And obviously, in this context, it wouldn't be a vision from God, but from demons. And the context here is, is these deceivers are so blinded by their pursuit of lusts 
that they have no grasp of truth. They have they have no fear of divine judgment. By the way, Paul mentions the same things in, in Colossians two, verse 18. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self abasement, which is false humility and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Dear friends, you have to beware of people that tell you they have some vision or some special revelation that's come from God. Let me give you one example of one man who has an enormous following. His name is Benny Hinn. You're familiar with him. He embraces, for example, a heresy known as tritheism, the existence of three gods. And here's what he said to millions of listeners in one of his sermon broadcasts. Quote, man, I feel revelation knowledge already coming on me here. Lift your hands. Something new is going to happen here today. I felt it just as I walked down here. Holy Spirit, take over in the name of Jesus. God, the father, ladies and gentlemen, is a person and he is a triune being by himself, separate from the son and the Holy Ghost. Say, what did you say? Hear it, hear it, hear it. See, God, the father is a person. God, the son is a person. God, the Holy Ghost is a person. But each one of them is a triune being by himself. If I can shock you and maybe I should, there's nine of them. Huh? What did you say? Well, let me explain. God the Father, ladies and gentlemen, is a person with his own personal spirit, with his own personal soul and his own personal spirit body. You say, huh, I never heard that. Well, you think you're in this church to hear things you've heard for the last 50 years. You can't argue with the word, can you? It's all in the word, end quote. Beloved, nothing even remotely supports such insanity. And only the most naive and desperate person would possibly buy that. But again, remember, Jesus warned about these purveyors of deception in Matthew 23. They're going to be self-appointed. They're going to be hypocrites. They're going to lack genuine compassion. Peter even said in 2 Peter 2, 3, that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're going to be desperate to be noticed. <coughs> and more specifically, they will distort the truth and claim special revelation. Third and finally, they will bully their followers. Remember in verse four in Matthew 23, we read that they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. And it's interesting also in Second Peter two and verse three. So I just mentioned we're warned that in their greed, they will exploit, literally cheat you with false words. And then later on in verse 19, it speaks of the followers of these people who are overcome and enslaved. Overcome in the original language means to be inferior or to be defeated. And enslaved literally means to be a prisoner of war. And because of the grammar of that text, it indicates that these people are in a continual condition of being a person's slave. And it's true. People follow these folks and they're brainwashed and they become incarcerated in their lives. And then these false teachers will bully them and threaten them. Oral Roberts at the World Charismatic Conference in 1992 said this, quote, someone will be watching this ministry on the air who promised a large sum of money to God. And you act like you have given it, but you did not pay it. You are so close to lying to the Holy Ghost that within days you will be dead unless you pay the price, God said. And somebody here is getting the message. You're on the edge of lying to the Holy Ghost. Don't lie to the Holy Ghost. The prophet has spoken. End quote. What a way to control the people. Just tell the people that you're somehow God's special person and scare the living daylights out of them. You see, there's no need for a phylactery here or long tassels. All you have to do is conduct yourself like this. Kenneth Copeland, and I quote, Several people that I know had just criticized and called that faith bunch out of Tulsa a cult. And some of them are dead right today in an early grade because of it. And there's more than one of them got cancer. End quote. Kenneth Hagan, another leader in this movement, said, and I quote, the Lord said to me again, folks, remember, whenever you hear that run. You know, the Lord has said a lot of things to me, too, and it's found 
right here in this book. But he says, the Lord said to me, if I give you a message for an individual and a church or a pastor and they don't accept it, you will not be responsible. They will be responsible. There will be ministers who don't accept it and fall dead in the pulpit. And I say this with reluctance, but this actually happened in one place. He went on to say that I told the pastor and that man will fall dead in the pulpit. And just a very short time after he did. Why? Because he did not accept the message that God gave me to him from the Holy Spirit. Well, friends, the examples are myriad. By the way, they will often proof, use a proof text again a twist a text to justify this oppressive control over those whom they have enslaved. They will typically use Psalm 105:15 that says, "Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm," which translates into "do whatever I say without question." Well, enough said, dear friends. May I encourage all of you to be on guard for those who would steal away the truth from you and from your families. False teachers abound these days. It's as though it's in the very air that we breathe. And this is no obscure matter. And again, this is why I believe Jesus made it the topic of his last public sermon on earth. Learn to detect false shepherds. They will be self-appointed hypocrites bereft of genuine compassion. Egomaniacs that are desperate to be noticed, twisting the truth, claiming special revelation, Bullying their followers into submission, along with a number of other things that you can read in the New Testament. May the Lord protect us all from their wickedness. And may we all long for the Lord to come and to snatch us away. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the truths of your word might motivate each of us to be more discerning. And Lord, we would just lift up with all of our hearts those people who are in bondage of the deceptions. Lord, we just pray that somehow by the power of your Holy Spirit they will be that they will see the truth, Lord. And may we love these people and may we be bold in exposing the errors that are being forced upon them. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy in our lives, because were it not for your grace, we too would be trapped in the same type of bondage. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lead us and guide us for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.